from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I am your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the comic book interviews. In less than 60 days, the U.S. 2020 election will take place, and there could be no better time to present my next two guests. Cynthia and Sanford Levinson are the authors of Fault Lines in the Constitution, The Framers, Their Fights, and The Flaws That Affect Us Today. Their book will be part of a line of civics graphic novels from the acclaimed publisher, First Second. Ali Schwed illustrated the 228-page graphic novel edition, which goes on sale September 22nd. Cynthia and Sanford explain how despite the framers of the Constitution's best intentions, there are faults in it that still impact and impede our political process today. Among the issues we discuss are the electoral college system, the disproportionate representation between small and large states, and a lack of representation of states' population diversity within the Senate. With the current backdrop of the Black Lives Matter movement, I am very fortunate to have Cynthia also discuss two of her other books, We've Got a Job, the 1963 Birmingham Children's March, and The Youngest Marcher, the story of Audrey Faye Hendricks. Cynthia explains what compelled her to write these two books and how children made a difference in black America's fight for equality and their civil rights in the 1960s. On a lighter note, when I kicked back with the creator, I learned Cynthia and Sanford's Island book and their beverage of choice. Take notes, there are some great drink recipes I know I'm going to try. If after listening you enjoyed this show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to helping the show. And now, please join me in welcoming my guests, Cynthia and Sanford Levinson, authors of Fault Lines in the Constitution, The Framers, Their Fights, and the Flaws that Affect Us Today. Here now, on Creator Talks. Cynthia and Sanford, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to start, Cynthia, with you. You began your career as an educator and initially had no desire to be an author. What changed your mind? Embarrassment. Feeling disgraceful changed my mind. I had had a college friend, lo these many decades ago, who insisted throughout college that I should be a writer. But really, it was teaching that called to me. And then beyond teaching, I became very interested in and invested in education policy uh, because I could see not everything happens in the classroom, or at least things that happen in the classroom could be supported by good policies. So I did that for a couple of decades. But then when I moved away from that, I did, I hearkened to my friend and started writing for children's nonfiction magazines which sort of piggybacked on, called on my history major in college and my having taught history into middle school and high school students and, you know, kept me interested in things and was a way of keeping in touch with children, though I wasn't in the classroom. It was while researching an article on music in the civil rights period that I learned more about an event that I had been aware of, but insufficiently aware of. In 1963, I was a high school senior. And doing what high school seniors do, I was thinking about college and goodbye to friends and what was my roommate going to be like. And that's what I was paying attention to. But I read the paper, watched the three stations on television that were available at the time and had a glimmering of an idea of what was going on that very May of 63 when I was about to graduate, what was happening in Birmingham, Alabama, which was 
people massing to protest segregation, being arrested, some of them being attacked by police dogs, some being attacked by firemen's extremely powerful water hoses. What I didn't realize until, oh, it was probably around 2006 or seven or so when I was writing this article, what I didn't realize was that all of those protesters were children. And I was completely mortified at my ignorance. And beyond that, I asked a number of other adults, well-educated, <laughs> aware adults, did you know that those were children? And it turned out that many people did not. It also turned out that our older daughter, who was at the time an eighth grade teacher, did know. And so I was further embarrassed. And I decided that I was simply going to have to write a book. I had never written a book before, but I figured too many people don't know this, that children put themselves on the line. And so I set about writing a book. That's what propelled me. Now, a couple of the books that you wrote early on, the multi-award winning We've Got a Job, the 1963 Birmingham Children's March, which tells the story of the lives of four children. And then you also did The Youngest Marcher, the story of Audrey Faye Hendricks one of the children who marched at the Birmingham Children's March. The first one you're right was, we've got a job. I didn't know how to write a book. So I began by doing, you know, what students do. I started reading. Um, and I spent a good three months just reading solidly about the civil rights movement and was concerned and disappointed to find out that very little was available about the Children's March. So the story is this. Dr. King came up with a strategy. He considered Birmingham, Alabama, <coughs> the most violent and racist city in America. And he figured that if segregation laws could be undone in Birmingham, they could be undone, they could be rescinded anywhere. So he took on the greatest challenge possible. And of course, there were many challenges throughout the South, but he eyed Birmingham. And his plan was very clever and very strategic. Of course, he wanted all protests to be peaceful, and ideally, he didn't want people hurt. But what was behind the strategy was the idea that if people protested peacefully and were nevertheless, despite their rights to peaceful protest, arrested, and if they were arrested in such huge numbers that they filled the jails, then eventually the police would have to stop arresting people because there would be no place to put them. So during mass meetings in Birmingham and throughout the South, he and other ministers called on people to give testimony about what was happening in their daily lives as a result of segregation and other forms of discrimination and to volunteer to protest by picketing segregated stores or by marching or simply by kneeling and praying in front of City Hall and to get arrested or to sit down on lunch counters, segregated lunch counters, and then to get arrested. Birmingham at the time had enough jail cell space for about a thousand people, but only at most a couple of hundred adults were willing to try this tactic. And often what would happen is adults would get arrested, then they would get bailed out, and they would sort of revolving door out of the jail. 
So the strategy wasn't working. Another minister, James Bevel, was really a firebrand, along with Reverend Shuttlesworth. But James Bevel in particular came up with the idea, if adults can't get arrested in sufficient numbers, then let's have children do it. He had been teaching classes in peaceful nonviolence to high school students in churches. And many, many young people came to them and they signed, literally signed a pledge, the Ten Commandments of Nonviolence. And they learned how to protest. They learned not only about peaceful strategies, such as, you know, what to write on their signs, but they also were taken to particular stations, like in front of a segregated lunch counter on Saturday mornings. And they were even taught if you are attacked, here's how you roll yourself up into a ball to protect yourself. So one of the students, high school students, who went through this training was a 16-year-old girl named Arnetta Streeter. She was completely devoted and committed to the civil rights movement. Her parents were appalled, not by her commitment to the movement, but they didn't know how involved she was, and that she was preparing to put her body on the line. And as you say, there are three other, even though they're real people, I think of them as my main characters in that book, there are three others who come from entirely different backgrounds within the black community in Birmingham at the time. But each one, for his and her own reason, decided to participate. So there was 15-year-old James Stewart, whose parents were professionals. His mother was an English professor. His father was a medical doctor. They were people of means. Going back to James's, I believe, grandfather, possibly great-grandfather, I have to read my book and find out, who actually bequeathed some land to James's forebears and to that man's white sons as well. But, you know, as we think today about systemic racism and the inability of black people in our communities to have the kind of financial basis that some white people do, it goes back to those times when there's not a way for people to inherit property. James's forebear saw to it that his family could. So they had some means, and he was aware of those differences within the black community, but he and his family were completely open-minded. So among the people that he invited, for instance, to his family's backyard swimming pool was another man, Washington, or kid, he was 14, Washington Booker III, who was, we would call him a juvenile delinquent. He skipped school. I asked Wash once, so... Did you have Mrs. Gorey as your teacher? Mrs. Gorey is somebody else I interviewed. And Wash said, I don't know. I might have. Basically, he wasn't in school enough to know who his teachers were. He would go out into the woods. He would build campfires with his friends. He was afraid of the police for very good reason. He told me stories that are in the book about friends of his who were simply picked up off the street, just walking down the street in Birmingham, the police would pick them up and hogtie them to the front of the police car and drive through town. James, on the other hand, was very studious. He was going to graduate with honors and he was going to college, which he did, graduated. Nevertheless, 
James and Wash were friends. And the fourth main character in the book is Audrey Faye Hendricks, who was nine years old at the time. Audrey's mother in particular was very involved in the civil rights movement. In fact, Dr. King and Reverend Bevel and Reverend Shuttlesworth and others as well, many others, Reverend Abernathy, for instance, came to their house for dinner to plan strategy, to develop policies and guidelines, to practice civil rights songs and hymns together. Her father was in one of the church choirs. And Audrey uh, was in the third grade, and she, at age nine, also decided that she was going to protest. So these four young people converged on the streets of Birmingham. Wash actually did not protest until he deemed it safe to do so. In the meantime, he was standing up on a roof of a building throwing bricks at police who were massing against the children. But these are four diverse but also representative young people of somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 people who did succeed in overfilling the jails in Birmingham. And then you focused on the youngest marcher, Audrey Faye Hendricks. And that was more of a children's book? Right. So we've got a job is for 10 to 16-year-olds. The Youngest Marcher is a picture book gorgeously illustrated by Vanessa Brantley Newton, and that's for five or six to ten-year-olds. It's just the story of Audrey because her story is so remarkable. It's called The Youngest Marcher because as far as she knows, she was the youngest person who participated in the Birmingham Children's Marches. There were stories about younger children, but never confirmed. And so far as anyone knows, she is certainly the only one who was jailed. And she spent a week in jail. She was threatened by a matron with solitary confinement. Her parents suspected that she would be in jail up to a week or so. And she asked her father to get her a game that she had been eyeing. And so the day that she protested, the first day of the marches, they went on for several days, actually over a week, she carried with her her board game, which she took to jail. And one day, she and everybody else had been ordered to sit down, and she got involved in her game, and she stood up to play her game, and she was ordered basically into solitary confinement. Fortunately, she wasn't left there, but it was a bruising experience. And Vanessa has done some remarkable illustrations for this book. It's hard for me to pick a favorite, but I think the one that is the most stirring to me is a double-page spread that shows Audrey lying on a cot in her jail cell with, and this is true, the one sheet that she was given and the wire springs and tufts poking through. And the way Vanessa has drawn her is with Audrey's back to the reader, with Audrey staring at the wall. Vanessa and I actually did a program last night for Blue Bunny Books, which is an independent bookstore in Dedham, Massachusetts. And as Vanessa and I talked about that particular illustration, Vanessa got teary and said it was probably the hardest of all of the illustrations for her to do because of the kinds of discrimination that she, Vanessa, 
had experienced growing up. Given the protests over injustice and brutality against black men and women, I think these books would be of great interest to our listeners and especially for their children. Watching the news every night, which can be rather depressing, one hopeful thing I do see is young children wanting to be active and involved in fighting for their rights for fair treatment. They are very passionate about that subject. It's great to see kids getting involved. It has to start there as far as driving change with the youngest generation. And I think these are great books that kids might really enjoy reading so they can see themselves in that book, see something that reflects them and how they feel. Thank you. I think so too. I agree with that. And I think a message of the book is that it worked. They succeeded, not in every way, of course, as you say, we're still dealing with these terrible issues and there's awful recurrence and recycle of brutalities against people of color. But these children in Birmingham had a specific goal, and that was to eliminate from the books Birmingham's severe segregation laws and regulations. They were so ridiculous that there were literally regulations against Negro and white people from playing games together. And the city regulations, the ordinances, even specified Negro and white people could not play checkers. They couldn't play baseball. They couldn't play card games. And then it listed where they couldn't play them, in any home, in any field, in any park. I mean, it was just bizarre. Restaurants were enjoined from allowing black and white people to eat together unless there were separate entrances and a wall seven feet high between them. I mean, it was just outlandish. Things today are also, of course, horrific in many ways, but the children had this particular concrete goal and they succeeded. Of course, housing remained segregated in Birmingham and so did schools, unfortunately, but Black people could finally go into stores and try on clothes, for instance. They could go into public libraries. They could take advantage of public services that their taxes had been paying for for decades. So I think another message of these books is if you work together, as I said, there were somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 children who teamed up. And if you work peacefully together and if you have a common, well-stated goal, then it can be achievable and exhilarating. I think it's important for people to learn about history so that we don't repeat the things we've done in the past, which we often still do. And I think what's great about your books is that it does educate people. And you are an educator, so that makes perfect sense. And another book that you wrote, Fault Lines in the Constitution, is going to be turned into a graphic novel. But it was originally a book, a novel, and I'd like to just read the introduction just to give people an idea of what the purpose of the book is. It reads, Most Americans take pride in the Constitution that established our system of self-government. But in 1787, the men, called the Framers, who crafted it at the Constitutional Convention weren't at all certain about the decisions they were making. They debated heatedly, each predicting the frightful results of the other's ideas. Then they negotiated, hoping that their compromises would head off disaster and provide stable ways to govern their new country. In some cases, though, the structures of our government, the parts that the framers hardwired into the Constitution, can cause havoc in real life. Some of the crises we faced in 1787 have resulted from or were helped along the way by limitations, ambiguities, and the flatly bad ideas in the Constitution. 
it might be appealing to believe that because the Constitution and our country have survived this long, they'll always do so. But the framers were not so confident. Perhaps you shouldn't be, either. And what I appreciate about your book is that it does not worship the Founding Fathers. We have portraits and statues made of them in their honor, but we need to keep in mind they were imperfect, and so was the Constitution. So I think it's important to understand they fell short sometimes, just like we do, but there's hope that we today can do better and improve upon it. The book breaks things down very nicely in each chapter. You explore the compromises made during the formation of the Constitution that created a problem that we have today. You explain what the problem is, how there are other ways these issues are handled at the state level and in other countries, and how the story continues to play out in modern politics. Would you share an example of parts of the Constitution you explored in fault lines? You know, I think we end up with 22 examples. Probably the easiest one to talk about, especially right now, is the Electoral College, because it was almost literally a last-minute addition to the Constitution because they really couldn't figure out how to elect the president. By 1800, when we almost had Civil War in the Jefferson-Burr election, it was clear that the Electoral College was wildly imperfect, and so we got the 12th Amendment. But by 1816, it was clear that the 12th Amendment wasn't enough. That was the first proposal to have direct election. James Madison, by the 1820s, conceded that the Electoral College really was a mistake, but we still have it 200 years later. So we talk about the Electoral College and the problems with the Electoral College, which are massive. I think that's the fault line that most Americans are familiar with, because, you know, if you're, you know, literally even 20, then twice in your lifetime, the president of the United States came in second in the popular vote, and it just didn't matter. But we have many other examples of fault lines, and, you know, we could spend the rest of the day on them. I wouldn't want to say one thing about the framers. It's certainly true that we don't worship the framers, but it's also true that we don't bash them. They were doing the best they could in a very tricky political situation where they viewed the existing framework of government under the Articles of the Confederation as what Alexander Hamilton called imbecilic. And they were afraid of being attacked by foreign countries, by American Indian tribes, etc. The problem, I gave a talk last year, one can actually celebrate the framers without necessarily celebrating the Constitution. They were audacious. They recognized that we were faced with extraordinary challenges and something had to be done. And they did it. What the people I want to bash, quite frankly, are ourselves for not having what is really most admirable in the framers, which was really a willingness to confront the problems that face us, including constitutional reform. I'm reading the book, and what I found interesting was initially the states did not want to be united 
that in the preamble, in some versions, United isn't capitalized in United States, that they didn't like the idea of being under one government as they were under England. They didn't want to repeat that. But it was important for them to be together, united, in order to have a future. All American history, in a sense, can be reduced to the fact that you're pointing out. It was actually the Declaration of Independence, where united was often in lowercase and states higher-case. And say all of American history really depends on whether you capitalize both and then how you inflect it. Do you refer to the United States of America or do you refer to the United States of America? So I sometimes ask my students to reflect on the United Nations and the fact that almost nobody inflects united and says, you know, we really are part of one large world and one large world government. What we say is, well, it's the United Nations. <laughs> and that's what the debate from 1787 to this very day is all about. The balance of power the, between the federal government and the states. That's often what it comes down to. It's true. You would think by now we could have made more changes to the Constitution so that things were fairer and more legislation can get done. But what I read about how the House is set up and the Senate is set up and how laws are made and how laws try to get passed and how you have to have two-thirds majority, I can see why it is so difficult to make changes. And you put in the book some very good examples of things done at the state level, things done in other countries that seem to work well. But it just seems that people are resistant to making those changes. They don't want to change the Constitution. And if you try to make amendments and try to make changes to improve things, it's a very difficult battle with the way the House and the Senate are arranged. Right. I don't know if you've gotten to the last chapter yet, but in fact, amending the Constitution is one of the fault lines that we deal with. I know Sandy wants to say some more things about that, too. But yes, throughout the beginning and carrying into the book, congressional gridlock is also a very major theme. I'm very, very glad that you mentioned that states often amend their constitutions and, in fact, sometimes replace their constitutions so that 50 states each has had just short of an average of three constitutions over their history. Because one of the things that is distinctive about our book is that we compare the U.S. Constitution not simply with some foreign constitutions, but very, very importantly, much more importantly, with American state constitutions. And the fact is, for better or for worse, you know, some people might think it's for worse, but Americans, if they even know that their states have constitutions, which every state does, they certainly don't venerate their state constitutions. People are inclined to ask a version of, well, what have you done for me lately? And so you discover that American state constitutions are amended frequently and often, especially in the western part of the United States, by initiative and referendum. So the people of many of the Western states can make decisions on their own and do end runs around the legislature. Whereas one of the fault lines that we talk about is Article 5, which is the amendment article of the Constitution. 
a political scientist at Houston did a study now about 20 years ago and determined that the United States Constitution was the most difficult to amend constitution in the world. And that, of course, includes American state constitutions. And one of the things that I hope that our book does, and in fact, even though the book is written for teenagers, I'm assigning it in courses that I'm teaching this fall at Harvard and Yale because it does set out these structural fault lines and compares them with state constitutions. And my fondest hope is to get students to argue with one another about whether the U.S. Constitution or the Nevada Constitution, the U.S. Constitution or the Texas or New York or Massachusetts Constitutions, all of which are interestingly different from the U.S. Constitution and from each other, And I would love to have students shout at one another about these differences in the way that they're happy to shout at one another about speech, religion, abortion, affirmative action, or guns. We want to focus, or I want to focus attention on the structural features that you yourself mentioned a few minutes ago. That is how difficult it is to get anything through both the House and the Senate. And then you discover that the president can veto legislation and the president usually wins veto contests. No, it would be great if more discussion was made of these topics on the radio, like just driving along. I'll go through the dial. I want to hear different points of view, left and the right. And there's a lot of talk about the passion issues, things that are in the news. But as far as the Constitution itself and making changes to help make better legislation, get things actually done, you don't hear much discussion about that. It's always those hot topics that get people all riled up and get them on the phones. I'd love to hear more discussion of things like this. And I think the book, even though it's written for high school age, it's very readable. And I think a lot of people will be surprised with some of the things they find and they're taken for granted and never really looked deeply into how our government works. Well, in fact, you know, this was something also that you asked me at the outset how I got into writing. And I said, basically being mortified at what I didn't know. And as I was writing this book, Sandy has been addressing these issues for over 20 years in articles and especially in some very major books that he's written. And I've, you know, I've listened to him talk about them. I've read drafts of those books. But in fact, it wasn't until we wrote this one that I realized how deep-seated the issues are. You're right. I tend to get riled up about what's happening in the news or about the actions of particular politicians at a given time. But in fact, what's happening in the news and what politicians are doing is happening in part because they're taking advantage you know, quote unquote, and not necessarily a good way of weaknesses within the structure of our government. So one of the major things, it wasn't so much that I learned, but I guess I came to realize people sometimes ask, which is my, I don't know if you would call it my favorite fault line or my least favorite <laughs> fault line. Um, and Sandy and I discussed this. I think for me, although there are a number of them, I think for me, it comes down In fact, to the Senate, the U.S. Senate, which is certainly something that we all take for granted. Oh, yeah, we've got a three branch government with two houses of Congress, one of the House of Representatives. You know, we go on. You know, if you've taken civics, which unfortunately more and more people haven't. But if you have, then you know about the House of Representatives and the Senate and balance of powers and checks and balances. But 
really the Senate is just totally skewed out of proportion, literally. So, you know, I think the fact that small states, combinations of small states weigh so much in determining what laws are passed and mostly not passed, outweighing the preponderance of the population, which more and more live in just a few states, I think is my um, most concerning fault line. I realize you talked to us from Las Vegas, and you know, quite frankly, I suspect that there might be different responses to the U.S. Senate in Las Vegas and across the border mm. in Los Angeles. Good point. That you, know, you have now almost 40 million people in California who have the same voting power in the Senate as the 550,000 people in Wyoming or Vermont with about 650,000 people has the same two senators as Texas. And, you know, I will say quite frankly, I prefer Vermont's two senators to Texas's two senators, but I think it's indefensible that the 26 million people of Texas have the same voting power as the 650,000 people in Vermont if we believe in one person, one vote. And this has real implications. It's not merely small state versus large state, though that's not at all trivial. It's also the fact that the U.S. Senate is a bastion of, to put it indelicately, the power of whites, because the smaller states, and here's where Nevada is atypical. Nevada is a far, far more diverse state than the upper Rocky Mountain area, or Vermont. Vermont is, I think, 92% white. So the Senate wildly overrepresents older Americans, whiter Americans, more religious Americans, male Americans, male, more rural Americans, all of whom deserve representation, but they get wildly more representation than they would if it were like the House of Representatives, whatever you think of the House, it is much more proportional and far more diverse than the Senate. So I agree with Cynthia that very, very high on the list of genuine fault lines would have to be the U.S. Senate, which is often referred to as the graveyard of legislation. This is what Mitch McConnell prides himself in doing. The blunt fact is that if Joe Biden wins, but the Democrats don't carry the Senate, then his program is basically dead on arrival Mm -hmm. when he takes the oath of office. And if he wants to accomplish anything, he will have to do what Donald Trump has done, which is to engage in the ever expansion of presidential power, which is really quite frightening. But that is a function of the fact that presidents look at Congress and start weeping because of the difficulty unto impossibility of getting really important programs through Congress. That's my fear, too, is that nothing gets done. It's a really good point you brought up. I'm so glad you did about the diversity 
and how the Senate is not as diverse as the populations they represent because I came here from Delaware. And the first thing that struck us was how diverse the population was here. Even our own neighborhood, old, young, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, everybody's here. It's amazing. It's great to raise a family in that kind of community as well. It's unusual, but it is great. Yeah. Now, your book is going to become a graphic novel, which is what caught my attention in the first place. And please tell me who your audience is for the graphic novel and about the artist, Ali Schwed, who's going to be doing the art on the book. Well, we're very excited about the graphic novel. We're feeling very hip, frankly. <laughs> in fact, a couple of days ago, unfortunately, Comic-Cons are not happening in person right now, but I did with the editor of the book appear on a video Zoom panel that was recorded that was at the New York Comic-Con yesterday. It was aired. So the graphic novel imprint of Macmillan at Macmillan called First Second, that's the name of the imprint, is publishing a series of books called World Citizen Comics. The first book just came out. It's called Unrig, which is very interesting. It's largely about their money in elections and politics in the United States. Our book is the second one. It's coming out officially on September 22nd. The editor, Mark Siegel, heard about the text version of our book from a man named Ed Sullivan, who wrote the teacher's guide for the text version. And I should say that one was published in a first edition by Peachtree Publishers in 2017. And then these are such current books. They have so many current issues in them that we did a second edition, which came out last year also with Peachtree. Mark Siegel then heard about that and developed with Allie Schwed this graphic novel version. Because it's part of a series, one of the upcoming books in the series is by Dan Rather. Because it's part of a series, Macmillan is marketing it to adults. I feel a little bit like the proverbial duck. In the meantime, we're sort of paddling around here, also trying to let schools and libraries, middle schools and, and you know high school libraries, public libraries know about it as well. Because we think it's just a wonderful complement to the text version. Different people learn in different ways and respond to text or graphics differently and feel more comfortable in one world or another. So we're thrilled that we can broaden the reach of the information in Fault Lines to a wider audience. And Allie just did a wonderful job. She frankly eliminated a fair amount of the text from the text version. I call it a text version. It's not a textbook, but it's a book with words in it. She eliminated a fair amount of the verbiage, but replaced a lot of it with just these wonderfully wry and appealing cartoons, I think she would call them, these drawings. Some of them are just very amusing and appealing, but it covers the entire book. So we're excited about that. I am too. And I'm looking forward to reading it and also sharing it with my children. I think they get a kick out of that. And I want them to learn about it because now's the time while they're young. Exactly. And I'm sure they're learning a lot from you and all the people that you talk with and the issues that you care about. We have some time. I want to kick back with the creator and ask a few of the fun questions I ask all my guests. And for both of you, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Go ahead. Yeah, that's a hard question these days. <laughs> you know, we're basically at home. We've been watching a lot of movies and a lot of television series, and it's fun. It is relaxing. I'm also teaching five courses 
this fall, so I have been spending a lot of time preparing syllabi. I don't think that counts for, as recreation. So <laughs> watching the television does count as recreation. And also I, I find that I'm exercising more than before. And that is a good thing. <laughs> I'm, I'd say I'm doing more cooking than usual because, you know, we're not going out to eat and we're only occasionally ordering in. So I'm cooking more, which I do find recreational and involving and fun, doing a small amount more gardening. Ordinarily, when we're not pandemic bound, we're traveling. We should have just a couple of days ago, come back from a family trip with our children and their spouses and our grandchildren to Ireland. But we hope that will happen some year. So often travel is something that we really enjoy doing for recreation as well. And I'm getting more reading done too, frankly, which I'm really enjoying. Oh, me too. A lot more reading, a lot of cooking at home. Very little going out, most of it being takeout. And my wife was so excited yesterday. She came back from the grocery store and the hatched chilies were ready and they roasted them for you right there in the grocery store. She brought home a huge box of them. Yeah, but there's a hatched chili festival going on in Austin right now. Oh, wow. I wish I could say I like them, to tell you the truth, but I think Sandy does. We made burgers last week and you had them on hatched chili buns. Yeah, which, it was delicious. I want to share that with my wife because she's trying to find things to do with all these hats chili she prepared last night. Okay. <laughs> she was cleaning them and it spent like two hours, but she loved every minute of it. She said she really enjoyed doing it. <laughs> now, thinking back, for each of you, what was your favorite birthday? Well, we've taken some trips for birthdays that have been great fun. We went to, um, oh, Alaska was an anniversary present, right? Ireland was going to be a birthday present, and some year it'll just be a present for another birthday. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you remember some birthday celebration? Well, certainly the oddest one was when I was 50, I was teaching in a program in Hungary, and Cynthia and I were both there, my birthday is June 17th. I think I might have arrived either that day or It was maybe a couple days before because I arranged it in but advance. But a birthday cake had been prepared, and all of these students from Eastern Europe sang happy birthday to me. In multiple languages. Right? That was certainly unforgettable. You know, in some ways, I would have to say I turned 79 this past June. I enjoyed much more than a lot of people told me I would my 60th, 70th, and 75th birthdays because I've basically been so lucky in life and also grateful to be surviving that long in good health and still teaching and doing what I want to do. I remember when I turned 10 the principal of the school I went to said, you're now turning to two digits. It will be a very long time before you add a third digit to your birthday. That seems a profound insight. So I guess I'm just going to, I'm now 75. I guess I'm just going to have to look forward to that and hope that it happens. As Sandy said, in good health, that would be ideal. A hypothetical situation, you're stuck on a deserted island. What is the one book you want to have to read? for pleasure. Oh, you're going to be surprised. You probably won't be surprised to know that I'm in a couple of book groups, but the one that Sandy and I are in together some years ago read Moby Dick. 
And we all decided that Moby Dick was probably our favorite novel, or at least the best one that we had read. Now, there are some people in our book group who would say, no, probably it's, you know, some trollop. But in fact, being on a deserted island, it could be even sort of a guide to have Moby Dick because, you know, if, if bones washed up on shore, I could identify them, all of the descriptions and the illustrations. That's the first one that comes to my mind, whether it's pleasurable or not. Oh, I mean, the characters are amazing. I mean, I think the opening of Moby Dick made me realize we talk about our country, as you just did legitimately about Las Vegas being diverse. The opening of Moby Dick made me realize how diverse our country has been for such a long time. And that in itself is pleasurable to read through. And the characters are just so extraordinary. Sandy, what would you say? I certainly might agree, particularly if we were deserted together, because it turns Cynthia is a wonderful, wonderful reader aloud of novels. We drove through the American West several years ago and she read aloud roughly the first half of War and Peace, which was wonderful. And then we finished it reading silently when we got back to Austin. Um, My Russian accent is not really there. So <laughs> it is interesting. I've wondered whether I should reread Proust, which I read 40 years ago and did not get much from. So if it were a long term on a desert island that could certainly keep me busy i would hope though i have but, to say that if sandy and i were <laughs> deserted together someplace that to compliment moby dick maybe he'd pick something funny maybe yeah. a david lodge yeah or yeah. david sedaris or something yeah. that's possible <laughs> jane that's, smiley we're, we're mentioning some friends ross chast okay <laughs> a book by right, ross chast a terrific book called The James Boys, oh, um, hilarious. which is hilarious and built around the conceit that Henry and William James had as their lost brothers, Jesse and Frank. <laughs> and it works. It's an absolutely <laughs> hilarious novel. That'd be a good one. I could see that one. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And now in real life, what is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? Well, I have several, but I would have to say, to begin the day, every morning for decades now, Sandy has been making fresh orange juice. And he doesn't just, you know, like squeeze oranges. He handpicks varietals. So it'll be the right mix of, say, blood oranges if they're in season, Valencia, Tangelos, Texas Ruby grapefruit. So that's the best beginning to the day is Sandy's custom-made citrus juice. Other than that, I have to say, I'm a pretty effete drinker. So I like pecan-flavored or hazelnut-flavored coffee and Dubonnet or sweet vermouth. Or my favorite kind of wine is the kind that comes in a bottle with a screw top. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say? Probably putting the, the juice to one side Probably most easily relax with Moscato mm. or even more than Prosecco. That Moscato sweeter. Yeah, a little bit sweeter, sparkling. And if you're really relaxing, then it's terrific. I don't know how well Moscato goes with a lot of foods. One rarely sees Moscato 
in a fine restaurant to accompany you know, a serious sort of entree, but it's a terrific relaxation drink. And these days we are going through Moscato yes. at an enhanced pace. Yeah, it's true. Chris, what's your favorite beverage? Very good question. I like to have a, a glass of bourbon. And uh, if I'm feeling festive, I'll make an old-fashioned. And uh, my wife likes to drink uh, vodka and a little bit of uh, sparkling water with that. Or to share a old-fashioned with me. She started making the old-fashions for me. And then I learned how and I started making them for her. So that's what we enjoy when we're relaxing in the evening. You make, Is it old-fashioned that you make with chocolate? Manhattan. Oh, yeah. Sandy makes a Manhattan with chocolate fritters. Yeah. yeah. Really good. We were in a restaurant in Philadelphia several years ago. We rarely drink liquor. Only recently, that is probably the last five or six years, have started having cocktails at restaurants. And this particular restaurant, it was December, it had a Mary Manhattan where the secret ingredient was maple syrup. So that is now literally the one cocktail that I make. Is that the one also with chocolate bitters? Or is yeah, that a, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Maker's Mark bourbon some vermouth, some chocolate bitters, and maple syrup. Gee, if it weren't 9.45 in the morning right now, <laughs> you make us yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. That's literally the only cocktail I'm capable of making. Oh, no, you make nice gin and tonics. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those all sound so good. Final question. What is the legacy that you hope to leave? Well, for me, I have to say, and I don't think I'm going to be successful, it would be to engender a willingness to take a critical look at the U.S. Constitution because I really do believe that in many ways it is strangling us and is in important ways a threat to our future lives together in a united country. But I've come to the conclusion that not only is that like swimming upstream, but it's like swimming up a waterfall. But, you know, that is the reason that I write what I do and teach what I do. And I'm really so thrilled in this graphic novel version, because I really do assume that that will reach a wider and different audience than the other things I've written, or even Fault Lines of the Constitution, which has been done far, far better, I will say, frankly, than any of the academic books that I've written. Many more people have read that. And Macmillan has published the graphic novel in a print run that would be literally unbelievable for an academic book. I think for me, thanks for the question, Chris. I think for me, there are two areas. One is the area of my writing, where I hope a number of substantive content areas, one of them being the Constitution, but also issues of race and social justice, to cause discussion and increase awareness by young children, to lead them to ask questions. So in the area of my writing, what I hope is to influence people to ask questions and to investigate. In the personal arena, I think the legacy that I most want is for our children and grandchildren to care about these issues and to act on them. 
themselves. And I have to say, so far, so very good. Our daughters and their spouses are both very, very upstanding and accomplished and concerned and active people. And they're raising their children to be such as well. And I find that extremely gratifying. So that's fault lines in the Constitution, the framers, their fights, and the flaws that affects us today. The graphic novel coming out September 22nd. Cynthia and Sandy, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, sticking with graphic novels, my guest will be Leah Moore. Leah is the daughter of Alan Moore, the co-creator of Watchmen and writer of Swamp Thing and other classic comics. Leah and her husband, John Repion, have written books for Dynamite Entertainment about Sherlock Holmes. She joins me on the next show to discuss the Morrison Hotel Anthology, which is written by Leah and drawn by artists from around the comic book world. This is perfect timing since it is the 50th anniversary since The Doors released Morrison Hotel. This anthology is written in collaboration with the surviving members of The Doors, and it will be released on October 14th. So please join me and Leah in two weeks. The show is available every other Thursday, and occasionally there are special shows on holidays. Who else will be on the show? Well, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod to find out who will be on the show. And never miss an interview. Simply subscribe through your favorite podcast catcher. The best way to correspond with me directly is through email. You may contact me through creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. Well, if you're listening to the show today, the day that it comes out, September 10th, this is a very special day. I want to give a shout out to my executive producer, Mrs. Creator Talks. Today is our 15th wedding anniversary. Thank you, dear, for 15 wonderful years and making this show possible. Because without you, I could not do it. I would never have the time or the quiet to do this show. So thanks again because you are a silent partner, besides being my partner, and a very important part of this show. Your moral support is truly appreciated. Well, that just about wraps things up. I'll get back to reading my comics. I hope you are enjoying your comics. I'll be sharing ones from my personal collection on Saturdays and Sundays, my Silver Age, Bronze Age, or Copper Age comics. And please share with me yours on social media and tell me why they are special to you. In the meantime, the best of you and yours. Please be safe. Take care of yourselves. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.